Welcome to Meet, Act, and Part. A Masonic podcast hosted by Midnight Freemasons Greg Knott, Darren Larners, Todd Creason, and Bill Hosler. The views, opinions and experiences that are expressed by the hosts or guests as individual Freemasons do not reflect the official position of any Grand Lodge, appendant body, or Masonic authority to which the hosts or guests belong. And now on with the show. to another exciting episode of Meet, Act, and Part. This is episode 48, and we're going to call this one Masonic Legends. Uh, I am your host, Darren Laners, and I'm here with uh, the good-looking Cavalier, Bill Hostler. Say hello, Bill. Well, I think I'm more of a Chevette than a Cavalier, but oh, good, good evening. <laughs> so we wanted to... Uh, talk about some Masonic legends, and um, Bill had written a very good article on the Midnight Freemasons website, and uh, Bill entitled it, Forget Me, Not My Obligation, but Bill kind of delves into, I would say, three pretty strong legends that are taught in Freemasonry is being true, but when you actually kind of do the research, they fall apart. So, Bill, why don't you just kind of introduce uh, us to what made you think about the topic for your article, and then we'll go from there. Well, one of the first things as was is that when I first became a Mason, you know, I first heard about the forget-me-not legend. And I remember it gave me a warm feeling thinking about how these brothers, you know, in the face of all the, in the face of a dictatorship and possibly losing their lives and their families' lives and being put in concentration camps and such, still tried to communicate and help each other. And the only way that they could meet forms of recognition was through the forget-me-not flower. And that, that really gave me a good feeling and it gave me a good feeling about the fraternity, not just what they did and how they tried, you know, basically helped, you know, their part in toppling the Nazi regime. But it kind of, it just really gave me a good feeling. And then, you know, you start to hear other legends and such. And at one point, I was reading an article in the Oklahoma Freemason magazine. And the current grandmaster at the time, Brad... Um, Rinkelman, had written a story about how the forget-me-not story was fiction. And I remember feeling gut-punched. I mean, it just really set me back, finding out that it's not true. And, you know, and and you start thinking about all these brothers, you know, we've built an entire fraternity almost on on a lot of that notion. We have tie tax, we have ties. We have, um, I don't know how many brothers will tell another brother, and it just becomes like this great big long line perpetuating this. And then at first, when I first found out, my first thought was to start to dispel the rumor, saying, well, no, honestly, it's not true. It was false, and I'd try to give it. And it never really was well-received. I don't know that they were disappointed or they didn't believe me, 
or that they just didn't care. They thought it was a great story and they just wanted to perpetuate it. And I got to thinking, you know, if what we could do, you know, even if it isn't true, and we tell the brother at the beginning it isn't true, but we could go up there and use that as a point on how to actually base, you know, basically fulfill your obligations. You know, it's, it's, it's a good example of how some, almost like a, you know, sort of like the third degrees, second part. It's, a, it's another one of these, and it's um, another way we teach what we, you know, you know, secrecy and things like that. And I thought, you know, that's a good, indic- you know, it's a good way of teaching what we're trying to preach to these young brothers. And then I, I read the book, Our Heroes and, what was it, Our Better Heroes and Demons, or I can't think of the name of the book off the top of my head, Better Our Angels and Demons by Brother Michael Halloran. And, and upon reading that, I found out the Friend to Friend memorial was, was also not true. And once again, another sucker punch. And we already use that in the Northern Mount, Northern Masonic jurisdiction to teach. So it's a good example of what we could do with the forget-me-not. And, you know, it's, and then they try to do it with like a, a story in the Scottish, or in the Northern Scottish Rite about Benedict Arnold and dedication and patriotism. We, there's so many of these legends that aren't true that really, they they are teachable moments, even if they aren't true. And then recently on his podcast, R.J. Um, Johnson had on a brother with the Masonic Mythbusters who proved that the Lodge over Simpkins Thor never actually existed, which I don't know, for some reason, I never really did think it ever did. I just thought it was a story, but apparently others had thought it was true. And so it's really... You know, they all could be, you know, we, you know, one's to teach, you know, brotherhood and secrecy. Another one teaches, you know, taking care of each other, Masonic charity with it to each other. Another one teaches the, you know, spreading of the cement of brotherly love. So each one of these has, you know, potential to be able to teach Masonic teachings. And then I got to thinking toward the end, you know, each one of these has been told so many times by so many people. And... People and the brethren love these stories. And you don't hear about any of them really being made today. They're all in the past. Then I realized what well, probably the big reason is, is nobody's going to write a fable or a, a long, beautiful story about listening to the minutes of a meeting or, you know, the treasurer's report or some type of um, teaching moment about doing a fish fry. And so it kind of tells me that this is what the brethren really look for is the stuff, the brotherhood that's in those fables, not what we're giving them. And that's also in itself a teachable moment. You know, if we want masonry, we want pretty much something more than just what we're offering them. Yeah, uh, so I understand that uh, these these tales aren't, uh, aren't true, but like you said, Bill, they, they are teachable moments. And I think what's what's kind of i'll talk about i don't know much about the lodge over simpkins store other than you know what uh was talked about in the uh, once came you episode that you referenced it was episode 536 i believe that that uh was referenced in and you've got a link to that episode in your uh 
article, but I want to talk really quickly about the forget-me-not. So irregardless of whether it was or wasn't used as a symbol and all signs point to it not being used as a symbol during the war, post-war it it was given out by the uh, Grandmaster of the United Grand Lodge of Germany, uh, Dr. Theodor Vogel, and he distributed the pen as a token of friendship when he made official visits abroad in 1948 and most notably at the Conference of the Grandmasters in Washington, D.C. in February 1953. And he kind of recounted the tragic tale of Freemasonry under the Nazi regime, and he expressed a hope that the pin would be worn in remembrance of that oppression. So I think that even though the pin, the mythology behind the pin wasn't necessarily true, I think what you know the pin stands for now is really really powerful and I, and I don't think that just because the mythology behind it wasn't true uh, lessens the impact that that symbol means today you know I've got a bow tie with the forget me not and and when I wear when I wear that I I not only think about the oppression that was suffered you know not only by the Freemasons but by everyone, especially the, the Jewish people under the Nazi regime and, and, you know, the Holocaust. But also, I think about the kind of beauty of what the symbol represents now and that it represents, you know, these ideas of brotherly love and remembrance and fidelity, these ideas that are evoked when you, when, you know, you view this symbol. So I think that uh, by the same token, the same thing applies to the the uh, monument, the Brotherly Love Monument at uh, at Gettysburg. If you, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it in person, but it is uh, it is just a very moving monument, and the the lessons that are taught in the twenty sixth degree of the Northern Jurisdiction the ancient accepted Scottish rite. It's the Prince of Mercy degree, but it's nicknamed the Civil War degree. So that, you know, the story that that monument tells about the friendship between Armistead and and Hancock, I think is, you know, very powerful. And uh, it, it kind of, I think, talks to the impact that Freemasonry did have on the battlefield. And whether these stories are myth or not, you often have tales being told of prisoners being captured and giving, you know, the Masonic sign of distress and and then having their lives spared. You know, you hear this at potentially at the Alamo, you know, the people that think that Davy Crockett survived the Alamo and he, because uh, both, uh, both he and the um, general the Mexican forces were Freemasons, and that he displayed the uh, this uh, the grand hailing sign at the Alamo, and and was able to uh, live out his his days as a, as a uh, alive essentially instead of he instead of killed at the Alamo King in Saginaw, Michigan, or, yeah, something <laughs> like that, but. But the point, the point being that you hear these these tales, and one of the best ones I've I heard was that these American forces came upon a uh, German tank crew that had been killed, and I believe this was in the early days of the war when we were had invaded um, and were fighting through the desert to oust the Germans from Libya and Egypt, and 
and they came across a dead tank crew and one of the tank crew had on a Masonic ring. Now, whether or not this is true, because, you know, obviously the Freemasons were banned at that point. Yeah, I kind of think um, that wouldn't happen, but... <laughs> well, but but you have to also understand that, you know, the, the regular German Wehrmacht and the SS were two separate kind sure. of entities. The SS were, you know, the very hardcore Nazis. The Wehrmacht, for the most part, were, I mean, technically Nazis, but, but they were, you know, in essence, you know, they were the, the troops that were conscripted, so on and so forth. So the point being that they came across this tank crew, uh, the, one of the German soldiers who had perished had on a Masonic ring, or they recognized as a Masonic ring, and uh, the some of the soldiers there that were Masons gave that soldier Masonic rights when they buried him. So it's these kind of tales, I think, that... that talk about the legacy, you know, talk to the legacy of Freemasonry and the brotherly love that we have for each other. Oh, sure. And there are a lot of instances, even as far as I know, that are actually true of that, of those. I know in the Civil War that those did happen. The one I was just sitting here thinking of, and I'd heard one time there was a story, and to be honest, I had never really thought about it till this one day. There was a brother who was having a um, an operation, and I guess he was extremely nervous. And as he was on on the operating table, and they were just about to give him the gas to put him under, the surgeon could see how upset and nervous he was, and so and he spied the brother's masonic ring, and he tapped the ring with his ring through his um, rubber glove. And says, don't worry, brother, you're going to be all right. And then the guy calmed down, and they went on to the operation. And I always thought that was another good one. And then it's like I was thinking one day, it's like, you know, whenever I've been in surgery, they take every, they divest you of all metals. They don't leave you with anything. In fact, you know, I didn't even have any hair anywhere after the last one. But then I thought, well, doctors remove all their jewelry and such when they're scrubbing up. So that one doesn't even come close to holding water. But you obviously know who Joseph Fort Newton is, or was. Yeah. He, I almost put this in the article, but then I realized it just was running too much. His father was a Civil War, a Confederate soldier in the Civil War. And he was captured and taking up... I think to Illinois, and he gave he was getting deathly ill, and one of the soldiers told the commander about this man, and he mentioned they mentioned he was a Mason, and so he took Newton's father out, took him home, nursed him back to health, and then once the war was over, gave him a train fare back down to Texas. And uh, there's an instance right there how, you know, that can affect, you know, the future. If that brother wouldn't have helped the other brother, we wouldn't have had the builders and a lot of the Masonic literature that we have today. So, I mean, and I know that one is actually true because it's been in the Phil Lathes and a lot of the, you know, Masonic, the more reputable Masonic magazines and such. But there's, I think it was one... A Masonic funeral in Mississippi once where a brother who had been a sailor on a ship was killed. And both sides paused and they uh, gave him a Masonic rites funeral and then went back to back to their prospective sides. Um, Alan Roberts has got a couple of books about all those. And it is, it's still amazing to this day about that. Yeah, and, and I, I think something that, that we kind of lose perspective on is that... 
the most important lesson in Freemasonry that's taught during the second section of the third degree is essentially a legend, correct? Absolutely. We we have, uh, you know, uh, Hiram Abiff is hardly mentioned in the Bible. He's mentioned more in some of the esoteric Jewish literature, uh, but... Still, essentially, uh, we have the Hermetic legend kind of coming into existence in the, I guess it was probably very late 1720s, but most likely into the 1730s. You know, prior to that, they taught Noah. (laughs) Yeah, so they taught the same lesson, but it was with Noah and his three sons uh, going to raise. Noah instead of the three fellow craft who end up helping with the raising of uh, Hiram Abiff. So, uh, you know, our our fraternity itself and our ritual itself is is for greater part founded on legend. I mean, there's even even the idea of King Solomon's temple is something that historians debate because there's just not a lot of archaeological evidence that it existed and it's uh so uh, i mean it's depending on how uh many layers of the onion you want to you know pull pull off so are you trying to allude that pythagoras probably wasn't a mason well, uh, you know, I do know for a fact that he didn't shout Eureka like it's it's taught in the uh, <laughs> it's, it's taught in the third degree lecture. Um, but, you but, know, uh, <laughs> there was a one time when I was still running the Masonic Temple that uh, we had the ballroom and whoever had painted it, and of course it had been fifty years. They painted the the white walls and they had all this decorative plaster work and they painted it all in real ugly lime greens and oranges and purples and such it was it was terrible and people would even comment when they walk in and say, oh, just look how ugly that looked and i made a comment one time about we should really paint this over and make it look a little more classy because we're renting this out and some guy piped up. He said, "We can't do that. Don't you realize the reason that was painted that way is those were the colors inside of King Solomon's temple." <laughs> and I just kind of well shook my head and went on. But <laughs> did you ask the brother? Because I'm I'm hoping this is an older brother. Uh, did you ask him if he knew that for a fact because he was there, or <laughs> he might have been? <laughs> he was older, but yeah, I think you know. It's just stuff like that. I mean, there was a brother, Lance Cates. He's, he used to be my partner in crime in Oklahoma. And his uh, one of his lodge members there in Oklahoma, he despised rounded-bottomed aprons. He called them clandestine. He said they were never... No such thing has ever had rounded aprons, round aprons and, and such thing. You know, he said, it's, just, it's always been square. You know, kind of like square work, square work only, you know. And so we, him and I, we used to laugh. We'd call him, talk about those clandestine aprons. And, <laughs> you know, it was like some of the one, you know, you know, we see, you see that picture of George Washington with a rounded apron at the bottom. So, ah, George with his clandestine ways. You know? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to mention because uh, the Grand Lodge of uh, Philadelphia has one of Washington's aprons in its museum. And it's, I, as I recall, had a rounded bottom. So, Well, they um, up until like the 18, late 1800s, they were all that way. The only reason that they ended up 
squaring them was because of the mass production and they were easier to, to sew and they were easier to, to put into a box. Right. So, I mean, that's how they ended up coming up. It, you know, the, so I guess we have modern capitalism and the Industrial Revolution to thank for squared aprons, but it just, it kind of just, it's like, have you never really looked at anything or done any reading or research? But I already knew the answer to that, so. <laughs> yes, well, uh, I'm sure that uh, you mentioning Washington was clandestine because of his apron has already caused all of our listeners' heads to explode. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they're probably gathering firewood and tar coast to coast right now, and they'll be heading for Arkansas. <laughs> and, and for those of you who want to hunt down Bill in Arkansas, here's his address. Yeah. One, two, three, Main Street. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not too worried because as many people over the years as one of the tar is weathering me, and I haven't had it yet. Yeah, besides that, as big as I am, do you know how much tar that would take? Yeah. <laughs> yeah to, uh, me saying that reminded me of the old Monty Python sketch, uh, the blackmail sketch. I don't know if you remember that, where they uh, essentially, it's a game show, but they mentioned some, uh, you know, very risque situation and then say, you know, so-and-so, if you don't want this film of your your exploits to get out send a check to blah 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 <laughs> you know and they flash the address on the screen hey but, maybe that's, that's the way we can start funding of. our temples <laughs> maybe i mean that's uh that's one way of doing it i i guess but there are just that there are so many different legends and and it's like i put in that article you know each one of us has our own memories of Lodge things and Lodge brothers who are no longer with us. And they kind of make up like a patchwork. And that's kind of, in a way, what, to me, fraternity is in a lot of ways. kind of like a big quilt with all the people and the stories that they have and the events that we've all entered into. Kind of sewn together into like a brotherhood. It's been really on my mind a lot. That's been really on my mind a lot lately because... Next month, it'll be 20 years since I became an entered apprentice. And I was thinking back to those to that day and how, you know, number one, how scared I was. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And all the ribbing that happened that night and some of the stuff that did happen that wasn't meant to be ribbon. And the, and the brethren that were there and how they're no longer here because they were older at the time. And it's like, we had some good times and it's like, you know, they really, I, I miss a lot of those guys. And it's, I even started to think that all three of them who were on my investigating committee are now passed on. And it's just amazing how, it, it feels like just a couple of minutes, but how much difference things are is just in the last 20 years. Yeah, I I just celebrated my 10 year uh, this past November of uh, 2021 and uh, of being a master mason. Uh, it would have been late September that I would have uh, received my EA 2011. So my 10 year of that passed as well. And uh, yeah, to your point, I think about, uh, you know, some of the brothers that either are no longer with us or some of the brothers that were, you know, very, very active Masons. And then for whatever reason, um, straight away from the craft and, and you know, are no longer... Uh, no longer contributing, you know, to to the craft. So it's uh, it's really uh, it's really kind of a, an interesting 
exercise, you know, you, you, of, of how you view these, these brothers. And, the, you know, there's, there's one particular brother that was very active. He was past master of our lodge in St. Joe, and he was suspended by the Grand Lodge. I won't say why. And, you know, he's, the rumors are uh, kind of going around that he wants to get back in. And uh, in Illinois, the process essentially is that he would petition the lodge. The lodge would then vote on his petition and then send it to Grand Lodge. And the Grand Lodge Jurisprudence uh, Committee would uh, investigate and then ask uh, the members of St. Joe why, you know, they, assuming we were to vote positively for him to return, why we felt so positive about his return and then assuming he gets past that layer then it would be brought up for a vote at grand lodge and just the uh the amount of hoops that you have to go through you know i i i won't state my own personal opinion on on the brother uh but uh i just think you know it for him to to return it's a very it's an uphill battle right and i've only in my I guess I've probably gone to Grand Lodge now five of the 10 years that I've been in, five or six of the 10 years I've been in. I've only seen one brother in all of that time get reinstated. And he was an older gentleman who got caught back in the day for marijuana possession. And he was growing his own smoke apparently and uh, got, uh, got in trouble with the law and, you know, had felony charge and got suspended. But, you know, uh, this was, I guess, probably 20 years ago or so. And uh, so now, you know, he's an older gentleman, wanted to die as a Mason. And and uh, the Grand Lodge voted him back in. And I think that's, uh, you know, kind of the just at that time, uh, marijuana had been legalized for recreational use here in Illinois. So, you know, the I think the stigma around it is probably lessened greatly that's the only case that i can uh personally recall somebody getting voted back in yeah see I mean, the ones in indiana it seems it's kind of the total opposite I, the only one i remember who wasn't voted back in um there was one out of this whole time i was going to grand lodge and he had like had to wait another six or nine months before he was allowed to come back in and that was chris hodap <laughs> he got suspended for something it was he was he was basically on a trumped up charge and and so he had to sit out for a little while and just live his life and run his uh, his business that he had at the time so but then he eventually got back in as we all know and you know it's history from there <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty amazing i didn't know that about chris uh you know, i guess who would have written freemasons for for tummies you know if not uh for him and, yeah there would have probably been nobody else to have been able to do it <laughs> Right, and uh, not only that, but you know he's the the common figure that's uh, on all the History Channel specials or American Heroes Channel specials or you know you name a special about Freemasonry, Chris Odaps uh, or American Freemasonry, I should right. say, Chris Odaps uh, is going to show up. So <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's kind of I do kind of get a kick out of that, but you know, in fact, he was part of the group that I was in, and. In a way, as much as I hate to say it, I almost pity more the brethren who aren't with us because they walked away than 
they and the ones who departed. I mean, we're all going to depart someday, and we're all going to go to that Grand Lodge above. But the brothers who just get frustrated and walk away from masonry because it's not changing, that's the ones I really pity because they're helping perpetuate the problems we're having because if everybody who had quit that I know had stayed and kept the fight going, we might have changed even more than we have in the last 20 years. I mean, we've changed a great deal. of A lot of the stuff that we wanted to do at the Knights of the North has been accomplished. I mean, there's still a lot to go. But if we would have stayed, stayed in the fight and used that one thing that we have as um, Masons, and that's a vote in our local lodges and our Grand Lodges, we might have actually turned the tide because there's more Masons coming in and, you know, than who knows than going out, you know, or passing away. We could have probably really fixed things the way, you know, we think they should be fixed. It's a few years ago, I wrote a thing called the Chinese bamboo tree. And it was, I watched a preacher on TV talking about it. And basically what it was is that you start you you want to plant this bamboo tree. You have to care for it and nurture it every day. You have to water it. You have to weed it. You have to do all this stuff, and you have to. You can't fail. It has to be every day, and it doesn't grow. You don't see it. You just have to know it's down there. But in the fifth year, it'll grow and it'll grow to like ten, fifteen times what you expected. I mean, it's like massive then in just one year. And I kind of looked at it as like that's what we've been doing. You know, we've been had the faith that we could change things and we could, you know, make grace and make Freemasonry great again. But so many people are like, well, I gave it six months. It didn't work. I tried this. It didn't work. They, you know, they laughed at me at Lodge. They said they never done it this way and they walk. Well, you're just kind of letting that bamboo tree die. And so if every man who gets frustrated would just continue to knuckle down and keep going, and if he knows a brother who's quit, talk him back in and keep him in the fight can you imagine the things we could do and if what we could do with freemasonry if we all stood united and we all worked together toward a common fraternity yeah it's a it's a nice thought <laughs> i know <laughs> i was gonna say it unfortunately though there are you know a lot of brothers that just want freemasonry to be their good old boys club you know they go there to get away from the wives and they don't want no education they just want to you know they just want to get to uh the after lodge festivities and uh complain about the roof repairs or building repairs or the price of toilet paper or or, or whatever and uh i i often feel that a lot of these older brothers we used to have one at uh at St. Joe, he's not passed on, but he's in a he's in a nursing home. He's suffered from dementia, and it was uh, pretty apparent during some of his later meetings that he would, uh, I think, just enjoyed the sound of his own voice. And I don't know if it was because he didn't get a word in edgewise with his wife, or or, or why, but but you know he he would regardless of any point that was brought up he'd have something to to say about it sometimes especially uh, as you know the dementia kind of set in more and more with him it got less and less coherent 
He would use profanity. I mean, it was it was really we were we essentially uh, it was the worst thing I've ever had to do as a mason. But in order to keep our lodge together and keep the harmony in our lodge, we had to get the grandmaster involved and essentially have the grandmaster censure him and 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 tell him essentially that he could he could stay a mason, but he had to stay away from our lodge because we could not you know, conduct business or we could not for the health of the lodge because there were many individuals, myself included, that were at the point where we were just like, enough is enough. We can't conduct business this way. We can't have education. There are things that we need to do that he's uh, prohibiting us to do. And I mean, in retrospect, I know it's not brotherly love. The thing that we did to him wasn't, uh, wasn't brotherly love, but at the same time well in a way you know, you, you know it sounds to me like in a way it could be considered you're keeping him from making himself look like a fool you you know you tried everything you could and you also had a you know had to keep harmony and keep everything in the lodge you know i mean you sound like you tried your best to keep him you know and you know you, you basically tried to keep him from making himself look crazy and so that in a way i think is a kind of a saving grace yeah, but it's still heartbreaking, well, you know. Sure. And then with COVID, we've not been able to visit him, so it's uh, I don't know if they relaxed the visitation at the nursing home or not. I need to check into that actually. I should pay him a visit if I can. But that's assuming he'd even recognize who I was. So it, it's uh it's just a, it's a it's a sad tale, but you know, it's uh I guess as you said the needs of the, you know, the needs of the, the many outweigh the needs of the one or the few. So, you know, I, we needed to essentially like, uh, he was a cancerous growth in the lodge, right? So we sure. had to, to get rid of that growth in order to, to save the rest of the body. Well, in a lot but, of places, a lot of lodges would have probably just, you know, had him you know, removed for conduct unbecoming. So, I mean, you didn't do that. So yeah, that- there was a point where we were thinking about doing Masonic charges. And and it, honestly, I'm glad it didn't come to that because I think that would have been messy and not the, not the right thing. I think we probably handled it the best we potentially could handle it. The last conversation I recall having with him, I remember him asking if I was still a member of the uppity St. Joe Lodge. So um, he, was, he, was, uh, he was true. He was true to the, to, to, you know, the, the last, but, but it is, you know, it is, it is sad. Cause I remember, you know, I remember him as a younger, when I was a younger Mason, I was 38, I guess when I joined. So I was uh, too young, but you know, I remember him being more coherent and he would have an outburst now and again, but you know, it wasn't as much as it was towards the end where it was like every minute it was just pure chaos with him and you just didn't know what what to expect. But yeah, I mean it's hard it was hard to see him kind of uh go through that that trajectory and and you know it saddens me the way that things ended up but like i said it, it essentially that's what had to, to be done yeah and that's, that's sad I, yeah i'd never encountered well i have but you know, it was the brother passed away so we didn't have to worry about it but but we have made strides in the last 20 years and i mean 
And I, and you know, getting back, I think that we lost, you know, that the point of the what we were talking about, the forget me not and Sonic Legends is way in our rearview mirror by now. But I think there's a, you know, some of these all kind of dovetail into one thing is that we do have possibilities for teachable moments for a lot of you know things that we do. I mean, we could, you know, between you know, we use Hiram Abiff, which we all know. I mean, but it just seems to me like we could use a lot of these to enhance our our method you know like um trying to think oh i think forget me not you know to teach you know a, a brother's bond his word is his bond and the you know the secrecy there's an in fact there is another there's a lodge in i forget where it, i think they may even be out by now but there was a lodge that i talked to a brother who no longer is in that country but it was in the middle east and they meet in secret and it's they have to make sure that nobody knows where their lodge room's at, that nobody knows what they're, you know, they identify themselves as Masons. It's a very secretive thing, just because otherwise they will be hauled in and tortured and killed. And so, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of like the forget-me-not story, but actually true. And, you know, it's... at the time, it really impressed me that these brethren will go through all these things possibility of losing their lives and losing their families and everything they own to be a mason to do something that we really just take for granted and half the time we don't even bother to show up to lodge because oh there's a baseball game on or well i don't feel like dressing up tonight or i don't but these guys are so dedicated that they are perfectly willing to risk everything to do what we nonchalantly do when we feel like it yeah i i think american freemasons probably don't realize how good they have it because in a lot of countries you know there is kind of uh very much uh that suspicion or anti-masonic public uh perception you know think about our, our brethren in the uk for example you know that the tabloids just love to rake the freemasons over the over the coals and, you know, a Masonic membership really is kind of not advertised over there because of uh, these prevailing thoughts about, you know, the special treatment Masons supposedly receive and so on and so forth. So, you know, and here we are in America and we'll, we'll put the damn square and compass on, you know, about anything you could put it on, right? So <laughs> it's, it's just, uh, you know, once again, I think we as... Uh, we as Americans probably need to do a bit of uh, introspection and think about, you know, how masonry is in other parts of the world because it is, you know, in certain parts of the world, like you said, you have brothers that uh, are meeting very secretly and and uh, potentially, you know, could lose their lives, their family, their well-being, their possessions, everything you mentioned, just because they are masons. So I think it's, you know, something that we should consider well and it's like you know you've been on the uh, midnight freemasons you know social media things seen some of it or how many times do we get people from africa or the middle east or just very impoverished areas begging to become masons i mean it's just you know and you try to help them or tell them you know in some cases tell them says you know your government does not allow it or you know you try to give them the information that they require, but sometimes it's not even, there isn't a Freemason's Lodge within a thousand miles of their location. 
And these people are begging for it. And it just really saddens me that we can't even get our folks to really treasure what they take for granted. Yeah, and but I, I do wonder if some of these pleas are because they these people that uh, are impoverished think that they're going to get wealth or power. Oh, I, I you think know, that's some, a lot of it. I really so, so, I mean, how many of these guys are reaching out that uh, do not, you know, are pure of heart, pure of heart, want to be a Freemason because and not because the mercenary things that they, you know, motives, as we say, that potentially they think come with the becoming a, a uh, Freemason. So, well, look how many, I don't know how about you, but I don't know how many brethren I've seen that join the lodge, and then when they find out that it's not going to help them in their business, you never see them again. So it's, it you know, happens here too, but but another one that gets me, and the, these same people, impoverished people, the, these damn Illuminati clan you know sites you know the, will come pop up and they'll go up there and they'll promise them the world wealth and power and all these things and then they just steal what little bit of money they have and I, you know i don't hate a lot of people but it's people like that that i just really loathe that you know you're preying on somebody who can barely feed themselves or probably living in a hut somewhere and they got like a little android you know, Dollar Tree phone and maybe a few dollars to rub together, and these and they're trying to take it from them to make to impop, to enrich themselves. While these poor people over here, they're going to be even worse shape than they were before they started out. It just really, I just, I, I, I hope there's a. I don't know this is probably not the place to say, it, but I really hope there's a special place in hell for people like that. And that being said, if you want to support the program, please <laughs> go to Patreon and support us. Yeah, we're different. We, you know, we don't <laughs> offer wealth and power except to us. <laughs> I kid, I kid. Yeah, yeah. That um, beat up old car you got is sure that one got through um, the Illuminati. <laughs> So, uh, Bill, let's I guess wrap this up. So, what what have we uh, what have we learned uh, that these lessons are, even though they might not be one hundred percent historically true, they still teach us lessons that uh, we can learn from. And I think you made a good point about about teachable moments and and moments that we can use to you know in our own lives or our own masonic experiences to to teach uh, the brethren coming behind us or even the ones that are, are in uh with us in our lodges some of you know these these lessons about brotherly love and, and using experiences like you know we've mentioned as, as teachable moments and absolutely and you know one of the best parts about it is none of these could even remotely be considered to be esoteric so you could um, convey them by a, like a video you could do it by a book you could do it by you know acting out a play like the scottish right you could you know you could make that almost as public as you wish to teach this because there's nothing in even esoteric about it and who knows if you know it might even be uh, somebody who sees this might actually want to even become a mason because they've seen it i it just to me you know it's, it's it just makes sense yeah i think that's very true uh anything else you want to say before we uh before we part bill <sighs> no 
maybe just support us on Patreon. You know, the the three guys that are carrying our water are probably getting a little tired. They probably need some help. <laughs> we can't get wealth and power with three brethren helping us. You know, that's that's true. So if you want if you want us to uh, if you want to help Greg, Bill, and myself achieve great power and wealth, please yes. support us on Patreon. <laughs> Listener supported me back to part. <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, thank you uh, to our listeners and our three supporters on Patreon. Uh, we appreciate your time and uh, your donations uh, to keep us, our little program, chugging along. And your and, patience. And, and your patience. And uh, we'll look uh, to have another episode out hopefully sooner than this last one. I know we've been doing about one a month. We need to probably uh, tighten the screws on that a little. But uh, to be honest uh, with the listeners, we've been trying out a couple different platforms, uh, trying to settle on one that will help us get some more guests. Uh, I just would like to once again say thank you to our listeners and uh, thanks for listening to another episode of Meet, Act, and Part. Thank you for listening to Meet, Act, and Part. For more information about our show, visit our website at www.meetactandpart.com. While there, please consider supporting the show by sponsoring us on Patreon. Until we meet again, may we meet, act, and part. <laughs>